0: We're in Isaiah 55 today, and as Nathan said, we're wrapping up a, we're a, a sermon series about the attributes of God. Several years ago, there was a hotel night clerk. This guy just worked the night shift at a hotel. And he was a Christian. He, he had an idea for a story that he wanted to write to teach his kids about God's love. And he thought, I'll just write my story down. I'll print it out. I'll give it to my kids as a Christmas present. So He did. And then he gave a few extra copies to a few other friends and some of them read the story and they said, William, this is really good stuff. You ought to publish this. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but the time has come and gone when there are publishing companies looking for unknown authors. Today, you've got to be a name. You've got to be somebody who already comes with a certain amount of cachet or you don't get published. So, so this guy, William Young was his name, decided to self-publish his book, which was a story about a guy who'd experienced a terrible trauma in his life. And then over the course of a weekend, he met with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in flesh in front of him. And he called his story The Shack. Now, many of you have probably read the book. It sold 10 million copies. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for a year and a half, made a movie out of it. If you haven't read the book, maybe you've seen the movie. Now, here's the thing. I, I read the book, I saw the movie. It's a good story. It, I found it very moving. William Young would never claim to be William Faulkner. He's not a, he's not a great man of literature. He's never gonna win the Pulitzer Prize. And, and his book's not a deep work of theology. And yet, it touched so many hearts. Why? Why? I mean, it's a very, very Christian book. It's very much focused on the person of Christ. So how could such a book in such a time as ours make such an impact? And I think it's just an indication that human beings are hungry for God. They're hungry to know him. And even in our country where we're so much less religious than we were a generation ago and and trending towards a a less institutional faith and, and still... If you tell someone, hey, here's a story about a person who met with God, even if it's not a true story, they want to know what it says because there's a hunger inside of us to know him. And what I want to do today is as we're ending this series about the attributes of God, and this is what the Bible says, God is like his own word and his own words, here is what I'm like. I want you to know if you've been here, if you've heard some of these messages, I'm glad, I'm thankful, but just hearing me preach is not enough. See, knowing God is not an academic subject. If you want to know more about bacteria, you can look through a microscope. If you want to learn more about Alexander the Great, you can listen to a professor lecture or read a book. God is different. It has to be experienced. It's an experiential process. The Psalms say you have to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so that's what I want to talk to you about, about a life that is built on actually pursuing him as the number one priority of your life. Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 55. He writes, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. In verse six, he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now these words were written over 2,700 years ago. And yet Isaiah sounds like a modern day financial planner. Why are you investing your money here? That doesn't make any sense. Invest it over here. This is your sure bet. When I was in seminary, I had a chance to serve as a youth minister at a, a church out in the country, out in Parker County, New Hope Baptist Church. And the man who was pastor there then and is still the pastor there today was a guy named Jim Edwards. Uh, Jim was a true pastor, a real shepherd. He didn't just get up and preach. It wasn't a job to him. He loved his people, part of why he's still there to this day. And he taught me a lot about what what it is to be a pastor. I had a kid in my youth group and I'll just call him Matt. Matt's parents both had jobs, but they were struggling financially. And Matt came to me and said, is there anything the church can do? Because right now we literally don't have any food. And I took him to brother Jim because I didn't know what to do. I was just the part-time youth minister. This was a small church, not a lot of resources. And Jim said, "Uh, yeah, let me let me get together with your parents. Matt's parents didn't go to the church. They never went to the church as far as I know. Just Matt was the only connection. So Matt's parents came up and sat down with Jim. Jim said, you know, we'll do what we can. I'll pass the plate. We'll see what we can raise to help you with your, with your immediate needs, but we'll, we'll take care of that. You'll have food in your, in your pantry. But I, what I want to do is I want to help you come up with a plan so you're never in this position again. And together they sat down and they walked through, okay, this is how much you make and how much you make and here's, here's how much you pay for electricity and here's how much you pay for, for gas and here's how much you pay for car note, et cetera, et cetera. And so he made out a budget for them. He even included their cigarettes because they said, I know they're expensive, Jim, but we just can't, we don't feel like we can quit smoking now. So, okay, let's write that into the budget. Let's just make sure that every month you're able to pay all this off and have a little bit extra. And so they did. He gave them this budget. And a couple months later, he saw Matt at church and he said, how are your parents doing? And Matt said, oh, we're, we're doing great. He said, in fact, uh, my parents have gotten a little extra money and, it, and it's a good thing because right now they were telling me the, the lottery's at $150 million. And so they went out, they bought a whole bunch of tickets because man, if we get that, we're set. And you know, Jim just threw up his hands like, what do I need to do? Why are you, why are you spending your money on lottery tickets instead of food? Why are you spending your money when chances are you're not going to win? And if you do win, I mean, read some of the stories. People who win the lottery almost always end up much less happy than they were before. And this isn't me as a preacher saying it's a sin to play the lottery. I'm not saying that at all. I am saying if you play the lottery and you win, you better tithe, okay? <laughs> uh, but, but what I'm really saying is why, why, would you, why would you take a chance with what little you have when there's a sure thing over here? And that's what God is saying through the prophet Isaiah. We're gambling our lives on things that don't satisfy. We're we're spending our money on things that don't fill us when the bread of life is right there for the taking. And I know know most of you would stand up and say, Jeff, I'm here on a Sunday morning when I could be on the lake or or at home or, or doing anything else. Doesn't that mean I really am pursuing Christ? And I would say, thank you for being here, but it doesn't mean that. With all due respect, I don't know why you're here. Maybe someone guilted you into coming. Maybe you're here because you think you get points with the big guy upstairs. Maybe, maybe you're here out of, a, out of a sense of guilt. I don't know. I don't know, like, like Teresa's story, you can be somebody who goes to church and not have a relationship with Christ at all. And even more than that, I know because I know how people are that there are probably folks in the room and I don't know who they are, the Holy Spirit does and I don't, but I imagine there are people in this room who would say, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus and they would mean it and they were right. But following God is not the most important thing in their lives. They're trusting Jesus to get them to heaven when they die. They're trusting Jesus to forgive their sins and, and maybe to show up once in a while when they've got a, a, a big problem. It's sort, of sort of a divine supernatural consultant, right? But basically their happiness rides on whether they achieve this certain level in their company or whether they get to have these certain bucket list experiences or whether their marriage goes well or their kids turn out great. Their happiness is based on something else. That's what their, their, their focus is. And Jesus is just there for the stuff they can't control. And I'm here to tell you, that's not a life that leads to joy. That's not a life that leads to abundance. That's not what Jesus died to give you. He says in verse six, seek the Lord while he may be found. And that's, that's a beautiful and incredibly blunt statement. It's beautiful because who, who are we that God would say, yeah, come to me, come over to my house anytime. Call me, text me in the middle of the night. I want to know you. I want you to know me. That's amazing that the God of the universe would look at us, this basically a bunch of fire ants, on the, you know, ruining his world and say, no, 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 come here and, and let me help you. But, but then there's that realistic part where he says, while he may be found. See, that offer is not gonna last forever because our lives are finite and someday our lives are gonna end and, and we'll realize I wasted it all. I wasted the opportunity of a lifetime literally. And I've known Christians. I've known I've known believers in Jesus who would say, "Yeah, I know I need to pursue Jesus with my whole heart and someday I will, but right now I'm really young. Right now I'm in my teens or my 20s and you know, someday I'm going to be 40 and I, I might as well get it, enter the nursing home then. So now is the time for me to really enjoy life and 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 not you know, I'll get serious about Jesus when I'm, when I'm old. Or, or you meet somebody who's in their young adult years and, and they'll tell you, yeah, I, need to, I know I need to be more serious about my faith, but right now my kids are little. Right now I'm, I'm advancing in my career. Someday I'm gonna be more settled and then I'll pursue him. And then you, you talk to them in the, in their, in the, when they're in their middle years. And they say, yeah, but I've just, in the next 10 or 15 years, I want to retire. And I'm trying to set myself up so that my kids don't have to take care of me and I'll be able to enjoy those golden years. And then, then I'll pursue Christ because I'll have time. Guess what? You talk to them when they're retired and they're saying, yeah, but I've got maybe 10 years before I'm too old to travel, too old to go to my my grandkids' baseball games, too old to do all that stuff. So I'm going to focus on that. And then when I can't do any of that anymore, I'm I'm going to get serious about my faith. And every day you spend investing in something else and not prioritizing your walk with the Lord is a day you're going to look back and regret, even if you're saved. You'll stand there in heaven saying, look at all this. Look at at what I have now. And I could have had it all along, but I didn't because I invested in the wrong thing. So why should we chase after God? Number one, because you were made for it. You were made for this. Genesis 2 tells us that human beings, Adam and Eve, And us, their descendants, we were made in the image of God. Now, theologians argue and debate uh, on exactly what that means. I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that up there in the sky, there's an old man that looks a little bit like you. That's not what it means. In the image of God means a lot of things, but I think mainly it means that you and I were were created in such a way we're the only beings in the whole creation and all of the universe that can relate personally to God. Your dog does not have a personal relationship with God. Trust me, your your, your dog is is a very beautiful creature, I know. A lot of virtue there, but doesn't know God personally. Neither does your cat. I can tell you, your cat does not know the Lord. Um, There's no animal on earth that knows God personally, but you can that's what you were made for. A.W. Tozer, the old preacher from a previous generation, said it this way. He said, we are called to an everlasting preoccupation with God. That's our, that's our, crea- that's our destiny. That's, that's what we were made for. Fish were made to swim. Birds were made to fly. We were made to know God. And, and sometimes I, I look around and realize that in church, we don't usually do a good job of equipping people for that. We're good at getting people here, We're good at convincing them to do religious stuff. And that's not nothing. I mean, it's great that you show up on Sunday mornings. It's great that you say your prayers and that you show up to to life group and, and do those sorts of things, but... But you can do all that and not pursue him. I, I remember uh, probably 10 or 12 years ago, I was pastoring another church and, and I got together with a man who, who told me, I, I've got to talk to you. It was a Saturday. Usually people are like, okay, let's leave the preacher alone uh, because tomorrow's the only day he works. So that's a joke. But, so, but this was an urgent thing. So, so this guy and I were sitting down over coffee on a Saturday and he told me, he said, Jeff, my, my marriage is falling apart and it's my fault. He said, I haven't been unfaithful, but I have gotten close to this woman emotionally, and it, it's hurt my wife, and I didn't mean for this to happen. I love her. I, I, I don't know what I'd do without her. What can I do to fix this? And I said, well, you know, there's a lot of things you need to do, and and, and getting together with a, a marriage counselor is one of them, but the very first thing you need to do is you need to use this as an opportunity to deepen your walk with God. This is an opportunity for you to get closer to him than you've ever gotten before. That's what hard times should do to you. And, and when you do that, you're going to become more like Jesus. And the, the man she needs is somebody who's more like Jesus. So that's going to that's gonna be a good start. And he looked at me and he said, how do I get close to God? And it kind of took my breath away because this was a guy who was in my, my church every Sunday. I mean, faithfully. And he wasn't someone who was, who was, uh, you know, simple-minded. He was a, an educated, successful human being, capable in every area, and yet he was in church every Sunday and he didn't know how to get close to God. And I, I just wonder how many of you would say, yeah, I don't have any idea. I just assumed that I showed up on Sundays and, and you made it happen. And, and, and I'm, I'm glad you show up. And I believe me, I am not trying to insult you in saying this, but you wouldn't eat once a week, would you? You wouldn't, you wouldn't eat on Sunday mornings and then go, go hungry the rest of the week. Yet, that attitude is even worse. That attitude is, I never eat, but on Sunday mornings I show up and I I, I listen to some guy talk about how good the steak tasted. If if Sunday morning is all you get, then that's the nourishment you're receiving. And, and so I, I shared with this guy, I said, it's, it's not brain surgery. God's not hiding. All you have to do is just tell him, Lord, I want to know you more. And then put yourself in his presence as often as possible. Wake up in the morning and, and read his word and, and pray throughout the day. And, and, and when you go to church, don't just sit in the, in the pew and, and listen, but get involved in relationships within that church. That's what life groups are for, so that people can invest in you and, and you can serve them and, and find a way to use your gifts and your resources to bless others in his name. You do all those things, you're getting closer to God. You're made for this. Number two, though, here's a second reason why you should pursue God. You should chase after him because this world is too dangerous to walk through alone. So there's this great book written uh, a couple of decades ago called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Some of you've read it. If you haven't, it's a a good one to put on your list. Packer, gives an illustration at one point. He says, imagine that someone took an, an, a, 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 tri- a, a tribesman from the Amazon. So a guy basically living in the rainforest, no contact with the outside world, uh, kidnaps him and drops him off in Trafalgar Square in the middle of London. So for our purposes, since most of us have never been to London, imagine you took that same guy and put him on Westheimer Street right, right around the Galleria. He would freak out. He would, he's never seen cars. He's never seen people with light skin. He's never, he's never heard our language. He, he doesn't know anything. He doesn't know how to get food, doesn't know how to get shelter. That guy would be lost. He would need someone to come alongside who understood his language, but who was a native to this land. That's the only way he could survive. Packer's point is that's how you and I are. We're living in a world that we're not equipped to handle. There's too much wickedness. There's too too many pitfalls. And you've seen this in your life. You've seen the mistakes you and I just continually stumble into when we do things our own way. He says, you need a native. And what God is is something even better. God is someone who isn't just from here. He created here. He created this place and he knows what went wrong and he knows how to fix it. And not only that, but he knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows exactly what you need before you even pray for it. And so why not trust him? Because when you focus on knowing him, here's what happens. It's not that all that bad stuff goes away. It's not that everything goes right. It's instead, you get peace that passes understanding. When everybody else is losing their minds, you have this sense of, you know, it's going to be okay. Okay. You get joy in the midst of all kinds of circumstances where you can rejoice, where you can see things that that are exciting and and that bring you pleasure. You get wisdom so you know how to make good decisions. You get love, you get forgiveness. You get so many things this world can't offer. This world is a dangerous place. You need the one God who who can help you through it. And he says, come with me. And then the third reason. The third reason uh, to pursue God with all your heart is he wants to be known. This is where the river meets the road because this is actually the point of the Bible. If you were to ask some Christians, your average Christian, let's say, what is the Bible about? What's the Bible's purpose? They would probably say something like this. Well, it's sort of God's instruction manual for life. It's where we get the rules and we know how to do what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad. And that's not the case. Yes, there are commands in the Bible, but you know how people say that the word, the, the word B-I-B-L-E stands for basic instructions before leaving earth? That's baloney, okay? It's very cute, but that's not what the Bible is. If that's all it is, then, then we're all lost. The Bible is more than rules. Yes, the rules exist, and the rules are for your good but the Bible is actually God's self-revelation to us. It is the autobiography of God. It is God saying, this is who I am, and this is how you can know me. And once you know me, here's what's gonna happen in your life, and here's what's gonna happen in eternity. It is an incredible gift. And when we read the Bible, we see story after story of human beings, like, just like you and me, who got that. And here's what happened in their lives as a result. So you go back to the very beginning. The seventh generation from Adam, early in the earth's existence, there's this guy named Enoch. And here's what the Bible says about Enoch. Here's the sum total of our information about this guy. Genesis 5.24 says, Enoch walked with God and he was not because God took him. That's it. Don't you wish you had more information? I know I do. But but if you read that chapter, it's one of those... Forgive me if you grew up with the King James Version like I did. It's one of those begat chapters, you know, where so and so begat so and so begat so and so. It's just a list of people. It's one of those chapters which, you know, a lot of us good Christian boys pretend we've read, but we haven't actually read, you know. Uh, but when you read that chapter, it talks about person after person, generation after generation, and only Enoch walked with God. This was somebody who really wanted to know the Lord. And it's as if God said, okay, if that's what you want, then you can have it. Come on up here with me. And he's one of only two people, along with Elijah, who never experienced physical death. Now, one of his descendants, his great-grandson, in fact, was a guy named Noah. Perhaps you've heard of him. Noah loved God so much, he was so committed to knowing God, that when God looked at a world full of evil and sin and knew, I've got to hit the reset button on this, Noah was the one, he said, I'm going to reset everything through him. You're going to be my focal point. You're going to repopulate the earth, you and your family. And, and as the generations passed, along came a guy named Jacob. Now, I, I'm sorry if, if your name is Jacob or if you have a, a son or a brother or a dad named Jacob, because uh, it's a fine sounding name, but you know the name Jacob in its original Hebrew means con man. I'm sorry, it just does. Because Jacob was a guy who was a deceiver. He was a guy who was slick and manipulative and and liked to use people to get where he was going. And then he ran into God. He ran into God at a place called Bethel. And then several years later, he ran into God again at a place called Jabbok. And it changed his life. And he became such a pursuer of God that God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Israel means he who wrestles with God. And not in the sense that he's he's trying to beat God, but in the sense that, God, I'm gonna hold on to you until you bless me. I'm not gonna let go of you no matter what. And Israel, Jacob, became the the father of the 12 patriarchs, the 12 men who became the 12 tribes of Israel. The modern day nation, the modern day Jewish people came from this guy, the grandson of, of Abraham. And one of those, uh, one of those days after generations and the children of Israel had become a mighty nation, they were on the cusp of invading and conquering the land that had been promised to Abraham all those centuries before. And they stood outside this magnificent walled city called Jericho. And inside there were all these soldiers ready to fight back, ready to stop the invasion. But there was one woman inside there named Rahab. And Rahab, although she was a pagan, although she was not, didn't have one drop of Jewish blood, and although she was a prostitute by trade, had decided, you know, I've heard the stories of the Exodus and I've heard the stories of the things that God did for them in the wilderness and our gods aren't real. Their God is real. I want their God. And she became a follower of the Lord and she survived the invasion of the promised land, became a part of the family of Israel, married an Israelite man and had a little boy and named him Boaz. When Boaz was grown he was a farmer in the town of Bethlehem and there was a famine and there was a young woman living in the town named Ruth who had moved from her hometown in Moab to Bethlehem because her mother-in-law Naomi needed someone to take care of her And Ruth had become a believer in God too just like Rahab a generation before and and needed someone Ruth and her mother-in-law needed someone to come alongside and rescue them from from poverty and starvation and Boaz fell in love with her and they got married And, and, and that family was rescued through that magnificent love story. Now Ruth and Boaz had a son and that son had a son and that son had a son. So the great grandson of Ruth and Boaz was a guy named David, also born in Bethlehem. David grows up, the, the youngest brother in a big family, the family of Jesse. And as the little brother, he was stuck with the worst job. So he stuck out in the shepherd field. And God says, I've got a better job for you and makes him king, king of the nation. David becomes the king that actually finally unites the, the 12 tribes of Israel and makes them one cohesive nation. Not only is he Israel's greatest king, not only does he uh, lead the nation to constant victory after victory, but he writes the book of the Psalms. The literal hymn book that Jesus grew up singing in synagogue on, Sunday, on Sabbath mornings. Uh, David was a man after God's own heart, which doesn't mean he was perfect. If you read the story of David, you know he was deeply flawed, but in his heart of hearts, what mattered most to him was knowing God and pleasing God and loving God more. David was promised by God, you will, your line will never end. You will always have a man on the throne of Jerusalem. And one of the kings that followed in his wake, one of the kings of Judah, sons of David was a man named Asa. Now, if you've read the book of first and second Kings, you know that some of those kings of Judah were wicked men and some of them were righteous. Asa started out wicked. And then one day uh, he met a prophet named Azariah. Azariah had the courage to confront the king a man who, can, who had the power to put him to death. And in Second Chronicles 15:2, here's what Azariah said to King Asa, he said, "If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you." And those words changed Asa's life. He became a believer. And a, and a pursuer, a chaser after God, and it changed his nation. Generations passed, and the and the nation of Judah had a series of bad kings, and they had fallen into absolute wickedness and evil. And, and, and there just was only a handful of people still following God. Just a a, a nation full of injustice and, and meanness and awfulness. And then an eight year old boy named Josiah became king. Now imagine you're one of those this handful of God followers left in the land and and your nation is at rock bottom and you look up on the throne of your nation and there's an eight-year-old kid there, you probably think, "We're, we're lost. There's no way. But when Josiah turned 16 years old, precisely at the point that I and a lot of other males become our most moronic, right? 16 years old, Josiah begins to follow God. And not only does he follow God for himself, he begins to read the, the book of the law, the Torah, and he begins to see, oh, this is what we should be doing as a nation. We've, we've gone way too, off. we've gone off course. And Josiah leads one of the great renewal movements in the history of the world and, and changes his nation completely. Now, there was a prophet in those days named Jeremiah who lived in the time of Josiah, and he, we call him the weeping prophet because he saw foresaw and then saw with his own eyes so many terrible things happened to his people because he saw that Josiah at the age of only 39 was killed in battle, in a battle against the Egyptians. He saw that that Josiah's son and then his grandson and all those that came after him were were terrible kings who didn't love the Lord. He saw that the people of God who had turned back to God under Josiah, as soon as their king was dead, they went back to their old ways and ignored the Lord. He saw that, that they were losing their nation. And in fact, Jeremiah was there when Babylon invaded and knocked down the walls of Jerusalem and burned the temple and carried the people off into exile. And and Jeremiah wrote him a letter, and this is in Jeremiah 29. Some of you know these words. You've heard them before. Jeremiah writes to the people and says, I know the plans that I have for you, plans uh, to prosper you and to help you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You know, those were written to people who had failed. And now we're paying the consequences. And they were God's way of saying, I haven't given up on you just come back to me. Uh, you still got, it's like the prodigal son, just come back to me and I'll come running to meet you. Two verses later, here's the one I want you to hear, Jeremiah 29:13. Jeremiah wrote to those same exiles, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You chase after riches, you chase after the perfect marriage, you chase, after, uh, in pers- you chase after hedonistic pleasure, you chase after kids that are happy and well-adjusted. All those are fine. But you're not guaranteed to get them, and if you get them, they don't make you as happy as you think. Pursuing God is the only pursuit that is guaranteed to work. Every single time, it never fails. And then finally, and then finally, the, the peak. The, the, the climax of God's story comes when a man named Jesus shows up, a, a carpenter, a builder from Nazareth, And he's God in human flesh. He's God come to earth to rescue us, to give us a way to know him personally. And no longer will there be some distant God that we're not good enough for. Now, because Jesus has died in our place, the door is open that anybody, no matter what they've done, even a Rahab, even a Jacob can walk through that door and know God personally. And as Jesus is walking along, he accumulates this crowd of followers. And and one of them is this woman named Mary from a town called Magdala. Now, Mary had a couple of strikes her. First of all, in those days, it was considered improper for a woman to follow a religious teacher. That's not something women did. They were supposed to stay home and, and cook and clean. And the men followed the, the, the rabbis. And then they came home and they told their families what to do. Mary said, forget that. I've found the one. I found the Messiah. I'm going to follow him. I don't care what anybody thinks. Mary was also a woman who, had, who, had, who was well known to have had seven demons inside of her. Which just must have been devastating. Jesus delivered her from all of that. And, and in my for my money, in Jesus' own lifetime, there was no more faithful follower than him, than her. And my proof for that is when Jesus is dying on that cross, Peter's not there, James and John, John shows up later, but the male disciples have all run. And Mary's there. And that next Sunday, she gathers a couple of other women and they go to the tomb to worship while the disciples are are hiding in a a locked room upstairs. She's there worshiping and she sees Jesus risen from the dead, the first one to see him. That's that's Mary, that's that's the ultimate God chaser. And then there's Paul. Now, if you and I had known this guy, Saul of Tarsus, in those days, we would have called him a terrorist because that's what he was. He was a guy who said, I'm better than you because I believe in the right God and I believe in him better than you believe in him. I, I'm, I'm more obedient. I'm from the right race. I, I've got everything on my side. Paul's life was about becoming a superstar within his religion. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he found out all my self made righteousness is worth nothing. All my achievements matter not. And it changed him. He became a guy, the people he hated were now the people he loved. And he wrote something that I want to share with you and then we'll close. In Philippians 3, 7 through 11, he writes, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider it loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, I'm not considered righteous by my fellow Jews anymore. I'm not considered a Hebrew's Hebrew. I'm not a superstar within Judaism anymore. All that stuff is gone, and I don't miss it at all because I've found something better. He says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Let me ask you, have you ever heard an American Christian say, I'm so glad I'm going through this really, really difficult time because it's helping me know the Lord better? No, we don't say that because we haven't reached that point where Paul was where he said, man, I rejoice even in the suffering because I am able to identify even closer to the sufferings of my Lord, and that helps me know him better. He says, Becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. See, all these people I've mentioned, they all found their identity in chasing after God. And they came from a variety of backgrounds. There were men and there were women. There were, there were uh, criminals and there were kings. There were old people, young people, rich, poor, Gentiles, Jews, other races. But they all found the only place where they could find perfect peace and joy and contentment and identity, and that was in pursuing the one who wants to be found, and that is God. So I don't know where you are today. I am not the Holy Spirit. It could very well be. In fact, I strongly suspect there are people here who no matter how religious you've been, you've never really known him personally, and today could be the day where that door flies open And you walk through and suddenly Jesus is real to you and you know you're saved and you're not trying to run on a treadmill and be good enough someday, but you're his. And it could very well be that there's a whole lot more people here today who would say, Jeff, I know that I'm saved. There's not a doubt in my mind. But I also know that I don't follow him like I once did. I'm just sort of going through the motions and hoping that's good enough. And I want to get back to pursuing him with all my heart. Let me just say it again. Stop buying those lottery tickets and start buying food. Start, start buying what, what blesses, what feeds your soul. Are you ready for that? That's my prayer.